Chuck Peterson is a criminal defense lawyer in Boise. He started his career as an army lawyer, and by the 1990s he was back home in Idaho and getting restless. I had a good practice, had plenty of experience, and, and then Ruby Ridge happened. Like a lot of people, Peterson had followed the standoff on the news. On what turned out to be the day Randy Weaver surrendered, he heard that a respected trial lawyer named Jerry Spence had offered to represent Randy. Peterson knew Spence as a larger-than-life character who was well-known for winning big verdicts for underdogs and the little guy. He was more than six feet tall, with a mane of silver hair, and often wore a fringed buckskin jacket and cowboy boots in the courtroom. And in Randy Weaver, Spence saw a typical little guy. My friend said, don't take the case. My sister said, don't take the case. Here's Spence talking to Tom Brokaw about why he took Randy on as a client. How can you defend a racist? How can you defend this person? The other side of me is that uh, as long as he's free to have those views, you and I can have ours. And when he loses his, we've lost ours. Spence claimed to have never lost a case. Peterson was a more buttoned-up kind of guy, but he admired the flamboyant older lawyer. He'd gone to a seminar once where Spence talked about getting those huge verdicts. If you aren't willing to ask for it, Spence had said, you don't deserve it. Peterson decided to ask for it. I got the idea that I would send Jerry Spence a fax. And so I sent him a fax that said something like, um, I hear you might be coming to town to represent Weaver if he comes down off the mountain. You're going to need local counsel. Um, I should be that lawyer. And then I said something like, I've tried everything from AWOL to murder in the last couple of years and would be happy to work with you. Give me a call if, you, if you're interested. A few hours later, Spence called, and he moved quickly. That evening, Peterson met Spence in Boise as he disembarked from his private jet and then accompanied him to the county jail. They were there to meet the notorious Randy Weaver. He comes in and he's this little scrawny... Randy is maybe five foot seven, if that. He was probably 120 pounds. But he just comes in and he's got these great, big, sad eyes. And he looks at us and he just immediately breaks into tears. And he says, they killed my son. They killed my wife. They shot me in the back. They shot my boy in the back. And they shot Kevin Harris. And there wasn't any reason for it. Peterson didn't know what to say, but he was standing next to someone who did. Eventually, Jerry looked at him and he said, well, I'm Jerry Spence and I'm here, to, I'm here to save you. This is Standoff. I'm your host, Ruth Graham. On today's episode, the prosecution of Randy Weaver and why the story didn't end with the verdict. Prosecuting the case against Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris was Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron Hohen, who we met in Episode 2. 
By the early 90s, he was feeling burnt out in his job as a federal prosecutor. I'm always, you know, in Coeur d'Alene, Pocatello, Seattle, Montana, somewhere else working on a case. I'm not home with my family. I'm not home with, with my wife. I'm not home with my children. I'm missing their lives as they grow up. Then the Ruby Ridge case landed on his desk. And of course, it just takes over my entire life. From the start, Hohen says, he wasn't optimistic about the outcome of the case. You have to understand how difficult it is to try a case like this in a state like Idaho that has a lot of the far-right to alt-right current running through it. It doesn't take much to fan that fire, and that's why this case, I thought, was absolutely impossible. But he had a reputation as an aggressive prosecutor who rarely offered plea bargains. Instead of limiting himself to small charges he knew he could win, Owen went big. His indictments of Randy and Kevin ran to 16 pages with 10 interconnected charges, starting with conspiracy to provoke a confrontation. They were both charged with first-degree murder in the death of Marshal Bill Deegan, along with assaulting and resisting federal officers. And they both faced the possibility of life in prison. Randy and Kevin's trial started on Tuesday, April 13, 1993. The courtroom itself was less of a circus than it might have been. Jerry Spence's team, with help from Bo Greitz, had asked Randy's right-wing supporters who did show up to lay low. They largely obeyed. But on the fourth day, a bombshell piece of news rocked the trial. Good evening. It appears tonight that David Koresh, who believed that he was the son of God, perished today in a setting that closely resembled hell. More than 70 members of the Branch Davidian religious sect in Waco, Texas, were killed after the FBI moved to end a 51-day standoff. A fire engulfed the group's compound. The surviving Branch Davidians insist tanks started the fires when they knocked holes in the building to inject tear gas. The parallels to Ruby Ridge were eerie. The Waco case had started as an ATF case, and then later the FBI took over. There was a bungled attempt to serve arrest warrants and a firefight that killed both law enforcement officers and civilians. There were women and children involved. And the FBI's hostage rescue team, who had managed the standoff at Ruby Ridge, was on the scene, including the sniper who had shot Vicki Weaver, Lon Horiuchi. As Chuck Peterson saw it, the disastrous and even more deadly end to another federal standoff was a gift to the defense. I remember talking to a juror who said to me, I couldn't believe that that was all going on and that our government was doing that again. And it fit into the narrative that you did have maybe an out-of-control FBI. There was this sense that we should be waiting people out, not firing indiscriminately at people who may or may not be armed. Hohen agreed. Uh, That was not helpful without any questions. You see the muzzle of that uh, tank go into the uh, into the compound. The place burns down. People are burned up. That you know that was a godsend for defense counsel, and you know it's just one of the many things that kept making that case harder and harder and harder. It's just it's the way life is sometimes. But when I asked Hohen what he saw as the key turning point in the trial, he had another answer. <laughs> There's only one answer to that: the fourth class mailing. The trial was more than halfway over when it happened. 
The FBI agents on the scene had already been on the stand. Sniper Lon Horiyuchi had testified that he couldn't see anyone at the door when he fired there. Then, Hohen got a piece of mail from Washington, D.C. that changed his case. It was an inch or two thick, as he remembers it. I walk into the office and my secretary said, there's a package came for you, it's on your desk. I'm like, oh, okay. I start going through the papers and I am just devastated. And I'm just going through page after page of this. And I'm just, you know, my stomach is just in knots. And I close the door and I've told people I broke down and cried uncontrollably for about five minutes. The folder included interviews with FBI agents that had never been provided to the defense, implying the Bureau had been deliberately and illegally withholding evidence. Worst of all, there was a small sketch on a hotel notepad made by Horiyuchi the day after the standoff ended. It was a drawing of what he had seen as he fired his weapon at the cabin, the shot meant for Kevin Harris that killed Vicki Weaver. In the crudely drawn window, he had sketched two heads, suggesting he had seen Vicky at the door. That was the end of the case as far as I was concerned. If I have to turn this over, it's over. And at least up to that time, we had a fighting chance. Why had the FBI moved so slowly in turning over this crucial evidence, Hohen wondered? There was a moment, he told me, where he knew he could have just held on to the documents and kept quiet. It was a textbook test of ethics. You turn it over and you take the heat. I mean, I was the government's lawyer. I can't control these people back in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm, I'm a nothing. Who even knows where Idaho is for a lot of those people in Washington, D.C.? And you, you, you have to understand that. That's what people in Idaho think of Washington, D.C. It's a corrupt, and as Trump says, it's a swamp. Chuck Peterson clearly remembers the moment he received the documents. Ron Hohen walks up to me. He's got a manila envelope. He lays it on my desk and he said, you should have had this. And I say, okay, thanks. I open it up and Jerry says to me, what is that? And it's the note on which Lon Horiuchi has drawn the door and the head. And I said to him, we've got him. They hid this from us because they didn't want Horiuchi to be cross-examined about this. The judge was furious and fined the government for withholding evidence. Horiuchi had to fly back to Idaho to testify again. He said the heads were meant to be Randy and Sarah Weaver running back into the house. He reiterated that he had never seen Vicki Weaver because the curtains were drawn. Owen believed Horiuchi. He believed the marshals, too. But he also knew his case was falling apart. Horiuchi seemed to have contradicted himself on the stand. Meanwhile, government witnesses told confusing and conflicting stories about what had happened at the shootout between Kevin, Sammy Weaver, and the Marshalls. It was turning into a trial about the government's errors, not Randy and Kevin's involvement in the death of a federal agent. The trial was wearing on Hohen emotionally, too. It had already kept him away from an annual fishing trip with his teenage son. And I tried to explain it to him, and he just wasn't hearing it, and pretty soon there were tears running down his cheeks, and he says, Dad, and I'll never forget this, he said, Dad, you love your job more than you love me, and turned around and walked away. And if you could have stunk a, a dagger in my heart and turned it, you couldn't have hurt me worse than that. But I was team leader. I was, uh, you know, it was my responsibility. 
As the trial progressed, Hohen was beginning to fray. I was working horrible hours. I stopped eating. I stopped working out. I think I lost over 40 pounds from the beginning of the trial toward the end. And I just hit the wall. Hohen couldn't finish the trial. One day in court, a few days before closing arguments, he just stopped. He's standing there and he's not saying anything. Chuck Peterson. And Ron is the tough gun prosecutor guy who doesn't give in to anybody or anything. I mean, he was a pro-government, government-is-never-wrong kind of guy. The government can do no wrong. And suddenly he was confronted with the fact that, that the Department of Justice had hidden this from us and then hustled Horiuchi off the stand so that he couldn't be cross-examined about the what was obviously the most important piece of evidence in the trial. Ron goes away and he's never to return. Hohen's partner was left to close the case. Spence and Peterson, meanwhile, didn't call a single defense witness throughout the trial. Randy and Kevin never took the stand. Neither did 16-year-old Sarah Weaver. Instead, the defense team methodically poked holes in Hohen's case. Why had the FBI changed its own rules of engagement? Was it really possible that an expert marksman like Lon Horiuchi shot Vicki Weaver by accident? The judge himself estimated that 75% of the government's testimony and evidence had actually supported the defense. Jerry Spence was loose and comfortable in front of the jury. He even seemed to be having fun. He had built his reputation on his knack for turning legal complexities into grand narratives of good versus evil. Spence is a great storyteller um, because he engages the jury. He doesn't speak like a lawyer. You know, when you watch TV or if you go to real jury trials, I get people who say all the time, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. That Why isn't it like TV? Well, because mostly lawyers are trained to stand up and talk like lawyers. And, you know, Spence was a genius. He never talked like a lawyer. just wasn't his thing. Cameras are generally not allowed in federal courtrooms. But you can get a taste of Spence's approach in this interview with Tom Brokaw, taped on the Weaver property in 1993. Brokaw asked him if Randy Weaver was a dangerous man. Do you see that hole right there? Now that's a hole that would be occupied by a little rabbit. I've never seen a rabbit that was dangerous. Until you reach your hand into the hole to try to pull the rabbit out and to take its young and to destroy it. And then the rabbit will bite you. That's the kind of danger that Randy Weaver was. Spence delivered a sweeping and emotional closing argument on behalf of Randy Weaver. He called federal agents the Waco Boys and the new Gestapo. If this was a murder case, he said, the real murderers hadn't been charged with their crimes. He told the jury that this was their chance to send a message to the government about how it's allowed to use deadly force against its own citizens. He compared them to Thomas Jefferson and said they could change history. Jury deliberations began on June 16th. Three long weeks later, the jury of five men and seven women returned with a verdict. After the lengthiest jury deliberations in Idaho history, Weaver was found not guilty in the murder of federal marshal William Deegan. But he was Randy and Kevin had been acquitted of all charges related to the death of Marshal Bill Deegan. The thing about trying cases is this. You know, jurors have to love your client 
to help you. And they have to want to help him and let him go. And jurors listened um, and watched Randy and listened to Jerry, watched the government's actions. And in the end, they liked Randy Weaver a whole lot better than they liked anybody else in that courtroom. And that's why he was acquitted of murder and acquitted of the other charges. The jury didn't just like Randy Weaver. Thanks to Jerry Spence, they identified with him. Dorothy Hoffman was juror number 11. I thought about what if this was one of my family or me there, and I, and I thought, you know, this is wrong. This is terribly, terribly wrong what's happened to these people. This woman was an alternate on the jury until two days before deliberations began. Makes you feel a little uneasy. Um, I feel like this has to be stopped. I didn't realize that they could do the things that they did um, to the extent that they did. Kevin walked out of the courtroom a free man. Kevin Harris appeared stunned by freedom. For the first time in 11 months, he was surrounded not by U.S. Marshals, but by family and friends. I had total faith in Yahweh the Creator. Randy wasn't even convicted of sawing off the two shotguns that caused the whole chain of events to begin with, which Spence had argued was entrapment. He was found guilty only of failing to appear in court. Randy served a few more months in prison and was free by the end of the year. For Randy's friends and followers, and others who had been outraged by the Ruby Ridge saga, the verdict was a measure of justice. And after the trial, the Department of Justice opened an investigation into what happened at Ruby Ridge. In the summer of 1995, the government paid Randy $100,000 in a civil settlement. His three daughters received a million dollars each. Officials say that they want the healing to begin. Uh, The government doesn't pay $3 million unless they believe that there's a a claim there that's, that's valid. Senator Arlen Specter plans to hold Senate hearings on the matter next month. With what happened at Ruby Ridge and what happened at Waco, I think it is a special time in our history where we have to be very open and there has to be accountability at the highest levels. That fall, a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee held 14 days of public hearings on Ruby Ridge. They examined the bullet hole in the door of the Weaver cabin and a scale model of the mountain itself. Democratic and Republican senators on the committee took an aggressive pose toward the government at the hearings. Here's Diane Feinstein, Democrat from California. Why were such extraordinary enforcement actions taken for somebody who just sold two sawed-off shotguns? Why wasn't the Marshals Service permitted to simply wait Mr. Weaver out? And Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa. Too many here in Washington do not understand the impact that this has had on the country. It's created a crisis of confidence, and it has to stop now. Grassley was right about the crisis of confidence. Journalist Bill Moreland, who had been on the scene at the standoff, was surprised by the story's longevity. Quite frankly, I thought that it would sort of dissipate and, you know, we'd go on to the next story. But within a short amount of time after Ruby Ridge, By October of that year, a lot of the anti-government players who turned out to become involved with what we now call the militia movement held a meeting in um, Estes Park, Colorado. They called it the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous. 
The pastor of a small church that belonged to the racist Christian identity movement led the meeting at a YMCA camp in Colorado. And the storyline is, what are we going to do if there's another Ruby Ridge? Lewis Beam, a prominent Klansman and Aryan Nations ambassador, gave the keynote speech. The attack on the Weaver family by federal assassins was an attack upon every family in the United States. This time the Federals came for Randy Weaver. Next time they may come for you. Beam was a promoter of the idea of leaderless resistance. The idea was that scattered groups of independent cells would be less vulnerable to government infiltration and prosecution. Without a shared leader, the feds could only take down one group at a time. Beam had encouraged lone wolves to act when the time was right. In Colorado... He used Ruby Ridge as a rallying cry. We will not yield this country to the forces of darkness, oppression, and tyranny. So if you believe in truth, if you believe in liberty, if you believe in justice, then join with us. The Federals have, by their murder of Samuel and Vicki Weaver, brought all of us here together under the same roof for the same reason. For the first time in the 22 years that I have been in the movement, we are all marching to the beat of the same drum. The beat of that drum, like those heard at Valley Forge and at Gettysburg, have called good men everywhere to action. The only question that we must answer is, Was it right to go up on the mountain and kill Vicki and Samuel Weaver, or was it wrong? Leaders in the white power movement had found a potent symbol in the Weaver family. The way they told the story was that it was government overreach, and it was just a poor white man living on a mountaintop. Why did the federal government have to lean on him and end up killing his his son and wife? And it's the little guy versus the government. Lewis Beam warned in a newsletter that 10,000 Randy Weavers are spread out from one coast to another. If anything, he was underestimating. Before Ruby Ridge and Waco, citizen paramilitary groups were relatively rare. But the two events happening back-to-back reinforced the narrative of a government attacking its own people. By the mid-1990s, according to one estimate, about 5 million people considered themselves somehow affiliated with the American militia movement. Different groups used it uh, to pitch their propaganda to say, you know, come join our group because we'll never let another Ruby Ridge happen in our backyard. The phrase Ruby Ridge became shorthand for many of the themes the Weavers had cared most about, even before the standoff. The threat of government violence, the preservation of white nuclear families, the importance of a well-armed citizenry. NRA President Wayne LaPierre referenced Ruby Ridge in a notorious 1995 fundraising letter, slamming federal agents as jackbooted government thugs. And for those still following the case closely, there were continuing revelations throughout the 1990s that suggested the government had acted negligently, and that they were getting away with it. The Justice Department report concluded Horiuchi needlessly and unjustifiably endangered the lives of the people in the cabin. Some critics also saw signs of a cover-up. In 1996, FBI agent E. Michael Cahoe pled guilty to obstruction of justice after he admitted to shredding internal documents about the case. 
but he was the rare agent to face serious consequences. Four high-ranking FBI officials ended up getting temporarily suspended, and one was also demoted. An Idaho prosecutor filed charges of involuntary manslaughter against Lon Horiuchi, but the case was tied up for years and finally dropped in 2001. Horiuchi had long been an object of fury on the far right. Timothy McVeigh, a restless Gulf War veteran, used to hand out cards printed with Horiuchi's name and address at gun shows. He thought about assassinating the sniper before he settled on a bigger target in 1995. Terror in the heartland. A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. By then, many critics were almost more disturbed by the lack of punishment for Ruby Ridge than by the incident itself. White power leader Louis Beam speculated in a Christian identity newspaper that only a few things could have motivated someone like McVeigh to carry out such an act— including, quote, the failure of government to punish those who killed Mrs. Weaver and her son at Ruby Ridge. Not the killing of Vicky and Sammy Weaver, in other words, but the lack of comeuppance. Randy Weaver himself became a kind of folk hero. Patriot musicians wrote songs about him. Federal agents, U.S. Marshals, and FBI men stormed the hill. All on false, fictitious charges, given orders, shoot to kill. The songs depicted Randy as a family man, framed and then attacked by a duplicitous federal government. We stand with you, Randy Weaver, cause your Lord and Savior lives. Wheresoever eagles gather, that is where his body is. As a minor celebrity, Randy made appearances at gun shows and showed up to talk to groups of sympathetic patriots around the country. Back in 2000, he popped up in a low-budget documentary made by conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Jones was helping to rebuild the Branch Davidian Church in Waco, and Randy showed up to pitch in for a few days. The federal government, they like to go out and destroy, he told the camera, and these people are out here building. That's the difference between a bunch of good folks and a bunch of bad ones. After the embarrassments of Ruby Ridge and Waco, the Justice Department and other law enforcement agencies recalibrated their approach to long standoffs. They started emphasizing patience over action. In Montana, a group of anti-tax militants surrendered without bloodshed after the FBI waited them out for 81 days in 1996. Just a few years ago, the Bundy family's armed standoff over grazing rights on federal land in Nevada ended without violence after the government essentially caved. Here's an extreme case. In Texas, an alleged militia member named John Joe Gray was charged in 2000 with assaulting a state trooper after a traffic stop. Gray retreated to his ranch outside Dallas, armed himself, and wrote a letter to authorities warning them to bring extra body bags if they came for him. Supporters brought the family food and supplies. Gray told a reporter, they can take my life, but they can't take my freedom. They never did. Authorities waited him out for 15 years and then simply dismissed the charges. Gray was so isolated that for a while, it wasn't clear he heard he'd gotten his freedom back. So what should the government do about people determined to fight it? 
Randy Weaver's style of separatism isn't a set of political beliefs, really. It's a cultural movement that sees confrontation with the government as fundamental to its existence. And it's tapping into a narrative we all learn in school. America was founded by separatists and dissenters, people who valued individual liberty above obedience to the state. We revere outlaws. But it would be foolish to think that narrative applies to all Americans. Sammy Weaver was 14, carried real weapons, and was shot after a slow-motion conflict that dragged on for a year and a half of careful approaches. More than 20 years later, a 12-year-old boy named Tamir Rice, with a toy gun, was killed by police just minutes after someone called 911 on him in a park in Cleveland. Only one of those stories inflamed the outrage of the far right. After he left the Spokesman Review, Bill Moreland went to work for the Southern Poverty Law Center, where he continues to report on right-wing movements. He's watched with alarm as extremist views have become increasingly normalized. One person involved in these hate crimes and hate activities can spread a lot of of hatred and a lot of bigotry. I mean, it, it doesn't take armies, you know. When their influence starts creeping into the conservative movement and into the mainstream of the conservative movement, it's time for the American people to pay attention. There's nothing special about Randy Weaver as a person. He became a celebrity, but he was never a leader. He was just a guy with bad luck and worse judgment who happened to become part of a story that a lot of people were eager to hear and to spread. I keep thinking about Randy attending the Aryan World Congress with his family back in the 1980s. They're just five more white faces in a sea of white faces, getting together to talk about separatism and racial purity and the coming war, the catharsis of violence that's always just around the corner. They're frightened, but they're energized by their fear and by finding a community that shares their fears and their fantasies. And then everyone gets in their cars to drive back to their towns and their cities. The Aryan Nations compound in North Idaho is long gone, replaced by a park. Today, white nationalists find each other online, and then march together in the streets. They're still talking about the battle to come, but they don't seem frightened anymore. Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge is brought to you by Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Slate Plus members get a bonus episode of the show every week with in-depth interviews going further into the characters and themes. This week, I interview Tara Westover, the author of the recent best-selling memoir, Educated. Westover grew up in rural Idaho in the 1990s, and her religious, anti-government parents were strongly influenced by the story of Ruby Ridge. Standoff was produced by me and Nina Ernest, with production help from Andrew Parsons. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. Thanks this week to Chow Tu, Kathleen Ballou, Michael Jockin, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Slate Presents will be back with a new miniseries right here in this feed early in 2019. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. <laughs>